The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, May 3rd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We all love the grilling of Bill Barr, the Bill Barr and Grill on Wednesday. And we all were a little sad not to get Bill Barr on Thursday. I think all of us except Bill Barr. Though Bill Barr thought he probably got the best of the senators, didn't he? I mean, if you watch Fox, as I did, just out of curiosity, the lesson is we should be outraged that Nancy Pelosi would say that Bill Barr lied. Because, in fact, the only way you can consider him to have lied is by using the commonly accepted definition of lie, not the legal definition. A huge purposeful confusion over the common definition of words was at the core of Barr's strategy. Words like to fire and collusion, to get rid of, spying, cooperating, the special counsel's team, and of course, suggest. Yeah, but I'm I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean, uh, that was Barr after being questioned by Kamala Harris. Perhaps they've suggested. I don't know. I wouldn't say suggest. Hinted. I, I don't know. Inferred. You don't know. Okay. Now, if I want to be 100% consistent in my linguistic criticism, Senator Harris probably meant imply, not infer. That would be the synonym to hint. It's all fine. But there was another moment from the Harris questioning of Barr that frustrated me. Now, I have no problem with this question. Did you personally review all of the underlying evidence? Good. I wouldn't expect the answer to be yes. There were like thousands of pages and hundreds of witnesses interviewed. That's all the underlying evidence. And indeed, the answer was not yes. Uh, no, we took and accepted. Did, 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 did Mr. Rosenstein? No, we accepted the statements in the report as the factual record. We did not go underneath it to see whether or not they were accurate. We accepted it as accurate. And made our, so you made our, accepted the report as the evidence? Yes. But what I was looking for was this. How unusual is that? Is it unusual for a prosecutor to decline a charge without looking at the underlying evidence? I mean, this was essentially a memo put together by a reportee. That's who Mueller was to bar. And it was extensive. And of course, it would be unrealistic to look at all the evidence as per Harris's suggestion. The Mueller team, like I said, interviewed 500 witnesses, thousands of subpoenas and warrants. But even on the 10 possible obstruction events that Mueller pointed to, could you have read some of the evidence, all of the evidence? How weird is it for the person who ultimately makes the charge not to have read the evidence? I get the point that Barr was fairly casual, bordering on the flippant in making this decision. My question still stands. Is it weird or wrong for a person prosecuting a case to just not look at the evidence? I could not find the answer in GQ's story about this question. Kamala Harris turned Trump's attorney general into a stuttering clown. It was also unaddressed in Rolling Stone's article, Kamala Harris dunked on Attorney General William Barr. Similarly, Vanity Fair's take on the entire exchange, Kamala Harris guts Barr like a fish, leaves him flopping on the deck, left unaddressed my basic question of, is it unusual for a federal prosecutor to not examine the underlying evidence before declining to charge?
Luckily, I have a federal prosecutor right here. He is Renato Mariotti. He's CNN's legal analyst, and uh, you should listen to his on-topic podcast. But first, tell us, Renato, is it unusual for someone in Barr's position, and I realize we might have to make an analogy to who that might be in other walks of life, but someone in Barr's position to decline a charge without looking at the underlying evidence? Well, it is unusual for someone in the attorney general's position to be overturning the decision of the person who actually looked at the evidence without actually looking at the evidence him or herself. So in other words, um, I often, when I was a federal prosecutor, uh, I often uh, looked at the evidence, summarized the conclusions in a document and present it to my boss and my bosses to get their approval. Mm-hmm. And it's all, you know, it is, it is, there are times where they'll, they, I'll, I would be directed, we need more evidence, we need this, we need that. But it's, what's really, you know, unusual here is, you know, Robert Mueller came to a number of conclusions and put those in the document. There's, a, you know, he said there's sufficient evidence to so this element or that element and so forth. And essentially what Barr did was say his conclusions were wrong. And he did that without looking at the information that um, Robert Mueller did. And I think that is really what's very unusual here for a supervisor of any capacity to be making that sort of decision in any case and making a public statement that's contrary to the person who actually looked at the evidence is really an astonishing thing. Uh, And in this case in particular, uh, it's, it's really unusual because obviously you're dealing with arguably the most important uh, criminal investigation of our lifetime. So you think it's unusual for Barr to have read those 400 pages and said, that's all I need to know, no obstruction? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no question because that that's very unusual because Mueller, as to a number of incidents of obstruction, went through each of the elements of of the offense and found that there was substantial evidence for each one of the elements. So essentially what Mob Mueller was saying is you have the evidence there to prosecute this offense. So for somebody else to just say, I'm looking at the same thing he's looking at, I'm not going beneath that and questioning any of the evidence by looking at the evidence itself. I'm going to accept all this factual conclusions, but come to a different conclusion on the law than him. I don't think it's possible to do in an honest way. And that's why really what Barr was doing was essentially quibbling with Mueller's factual determinations without actually looking at the underlying evidence. All right. Renato Mariotti, thanks so much. No problem. And there you have it. It is unusual. I don't know that that is so unusual, that it would be unusual, but I just like to have the basic facts. Yes, I get the dunking and the fishing and the gutting and the stuttering, but could we just have some facts? On the show today, in fact, in the spiel, Stephen Moore on the Federal Reserve Board. He seldom reserved, so we'd never have been bored, but other than that, a totally terrible idea whose time has passed. But first, the new Netflix series Tuca and Birdie follows a pair of friends who are indeed feathered. They are birds. They are literal birds. Well, not literal birds, cartoon birds, but It is a hilarious show in the style of BoJack Horseman, and that's because it is helmed by the woman who designed all those humanoid animals on BoJack Horseman. Lisa Hannawalt is here.
If you know anything about BoJack Horseman, one of the great comic characters of the last 20 years, you know that maybe he's solipsistic and selfish, has a lot of foibles, can be charming, tons of flaws. But the other thing that you know that you probably didn't even think to bring up is he's a horse. The guy's a horse. And why is the guy a horse? Well, primarily because of my next guest, Lisa Hannah-Walt, who is out with a new series. She is the visual stylist behind BoJack Horseman. Her new series, Tuca and Birdie, is about a couple, you know, couple of avian pals just making their way in the world. It looks a lot like BoJack, but there are some key differences that I want to get into. Hello, Lisa. Thanks Hello. for joining me. Thank you for having me. So on BoJack, do you are you in the writer's room working on scripts? Like, what's your no, involvement? I don't write at all, um, and I don't, you know, do anything with the plots. Like, sometimes Raphael will run an idea past me, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't work on the scripts at all. I sit near the writer's room, so I eavesdrop on them a lot. To get the show going, did he tap you? I mean, how did BoJack come to life looking like he does? It was sort of um, partly inspired by my drawings of animal people. Right. Um, you so, have a lot of books out. And yeah. I know you were part of a collective, which is the best part of the best way to draw. Oh, are you talking about Pizza Island? Yes, Pizza That's Island. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the most famous collective yes. of female cartoonists. Um, in, in Greenpoint of the late aughts. That's yes. right. <laughs> we were real part of the zeitgeist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he based it on my animal people. And then from the beginning, I, I designed all the main characters and art directed the show. Yeah. And like the new show, there's, I guess if you have an animal world, you have the opportunity for good animal puns, but you also have to make the rules of the world. Yeah. And I think, and I'm going to get to the differences, but in the new show, the, the rules are very similar to the old show in that, well, let's see, they have, most of your animals have feet. Yes. That the actual animal wouldn't have. Feet right? and hands, yeah. Feet and hands, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they all have, well, you tell me, like uh, Tuca, she does some toucanish things, but then some things that are probably very un-toucanish. I don't know how many toucans twerk, for instance. That's right. She does twerk, which I have seen toucans do in the wild, but, um, you know, <laughs> but yeah, she's it's called mostly, presenting. That's it's, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mating ritual. Um, she's mostly human, but mm -hmm. yeah, the, the animal characteristics do kind of come into her behavior. But um, she was inspired by me watching a nature documentary of toucans and going, oh, that's me. That's what I'm like. Oh, you're like a toucan. How yeah. are you like a toucan? Well, this toucan I was watching was stealing eggs out of other birds' nests and mm -hmm. gobbling the eggs. And I was like, well, I'm greedy with food, so I just really relate to this on a deep you level. You kind of take the narrowest slice of that <laughs> interpretation. And what's Birdie like? What kind of bird is she, first of all? She is a song thrush. Okay. So she likes singing, but she's very shy. She's more anxious. She's a little more introverted. Yeah. Um, but she's like kind of brave on the inside, and mm -hmm. she's kind of her own sort of badass. Did you cast the voice actresses or the actresses after you created the characters? Yeah, I created the characters first, and then we cast Tiffany pretty early on. Tiffany um, Haddish. That's right. She's Tuka's very Tiffany Haddish. That's, I mean, when I saw her in Girls Trip, I said, yeah. that's a Tuka. Yeah. We gotta get her. Um, <laughs> and then I worried originally that Ali Wong was also a Tuka because she's so fearless and bold and so hilarious in her comedy, but she came in on, and auditioned, and she was just perfect as Birdie. Okay, so the biggest change that I saw is it's not just the fauna. You had the fauna down in the new show. That's right. There's flora. We're getting into flora. Wow. But We're... flora don't talk? <laughs> well, they do and they don't. I mean, we have a character, Draca, who's yeah. like a plant lady. Yeah. And she's very mysterious. And it seems at first like she doesn't talk. But then she's just a little taciturn. Is that uh -huh. what you say? Like she's yeah. just... She, she speaks when it's important to She's speak. kind of a wallflower is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> See, I know you would 
you would run with the puns because I've seen your sets and they're mostly puns. That's right. <laughs> like play duck. Yes. <laughs> or is it duck bill? Duck, duck bill. Uh, yeah, your, duck your bill. version in, of play bill Yeah, is in the duck background. Bill. That's yes. uh, Dapper Dog's living room. He's He likes the play life. Why did you want to get the roses and the flowers and the plants in there? I just think it's fun and weird. And it it's something I hadn't quite seen a lot of before. And it was something I had tried to do on BoJack. And Raphael, the creator, was like, no, absolutely plants don't talk on this show. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I was like, well, on my show, they will. Now, the other another thing about this new show, unlike uh, BoJack... And I think unlike most other cartoons is that you'll do the thing where the plot is going along and boom, it freezes. And then there's some information on the screen. There's some labeling. And I'm I'll, first, I, I want to ask you where that comes from. But what it reminded me of, and maybe you could tell me if this was partly an inspiration, is the beginning of Coyote and Roadrunner when they'd stop <laughs> and they'd always put, you know, Chasis Roadrunicus oh, under yeah. the coyote's name, like this faux Latin uh, scientific naming. That was one of the things it reminded me of. And another thing it reminded me of is in movies by... Help me out. What's the guy who did uh, Boogie Nights and... Uh, oh, Paul F... Uh, P- PT, PT... Paul F. Tompkins. P- Paul F. Tompkins. <laughs> PT. Happens to be on my screen. Okay. P.T. Paul- Anderson. Yes, okay. Yeah. So it also reminds me, there are some P.T. Anderson oh, there is movies. a Paul F. Tompkins in a P.T. Anderson movie, isn't oh, there? Oh, wow. <laughs> so it does remind me of some P- some Paul Thomas Anderson movies where they do stop and then there are some labels and, you know, kind of joke labels that are probably playing on something else. I understand it's an opportunity for great comedy, but where does it come from? Well, that was kind of us wanting to make the show look more like my personal work and look more like my comic books. Yes. Because yes. originally we got the animatic back from the first director, Amy Winfrey, and it was very much treated like a BoJack episode where it's very true to the script. And while this is a script-based show, we had a meeting with all the directors where we were like, feel free to break this apart, like delete lines, add lines, add whole scenes if you need to, like break this apart visually flip through my comic books see how like i just kind of i'll have a short story and then randomly there'll just be a list of things yeah my books are really weird and kind of but it can be all over the place the point is they're only weird because we're used to books that aren't like that yeah you know, I mean, a they're, book, they're, they, they seem unstructured to some people, but to yeah. me, I'm like, no, this makes complete sense. <laughs> to me, they're a little like Tristan Shandy, right? Which has like a whole page just of black and can play. Can, you are reading this physical object, the book. So why not play with it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, you need yeah. pacing in there. Like I loved, I love a blank page. So we'll do that sometimes with the show <laughs> where it's very hyperactive. There's a lot going on visually, but sometimes it just gives you like a, a breather, like a character's baking or she's just standing in the water looking at her feet. Yes. Or, but know, luckily I, there's a lot of, there's, there's jokes there too. There's a lot of jokes. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of jokes to pick up on. Yeah. Your parents were biologists or That's are? right. They are. Yeah. Well, they, they're retired now, but yeah. yes. So, uh, microbiologists. Very oh, small. Microbiologists. Very small biology. So total <laughs> coincidence about what you do and how you look at the world? Oh, I'm sure there's a little bit I mean, of how did biology, yeah, uh, amidst all the nature that we're talking about, but how did biology per se influence, like, if we went to your house, Lisa's house as a young girl, where would the b- biology show up? I mean, I think it helped that they just had a lot of curiosity about the world and about life. And they had a lot of like art objects in our house because they travel a lot and they pick up things and a lot of weird sculptures and paintings and lots of books of like, you know, weird animals and dinosaurs. And I mean, just like the curiosity was just really influential on me. And my dad would be like, look at this video of cancer cells multiplying. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, it, cancer is terrible, but it is fascinating. Yeah. Um, we would like to eradicate it. But while it's here, let's look at how it works. You Can't know? turn away. Yeah. yeah. 
Explain to me, as if I had no idea, because I don't, <laughs> what's the amount of drawing you do? And are you like the titular master chef who kind of tells people what the dish is and then hands it off and make sure they do it right? I now? am. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. And I do a little bit less every season because I'm trying to like delegate more. And like this season, season six, we're working on right now. And I have a new art director, Sarah Harkey. Um, so I'm passing a lot down to her. But um, with basically all the major characters, I'm making one drawing of them in one pose. And I design their costume, color them in, everything. I show it to Raphael. We talk about it. I make sure it's just right. And then I pass that down to the character department and they turn it around give it mouths and like really flesh them out and then the backgrounds I art direct so I look at them and I tell if you know we want to change the colors if we want to add background jokes or if if something's just not working in the context I, I'm the one with the sort of bigger picture view of everything like I, I'm like well in this scene this family lives here and that doesn't really that's not what I'm seeing like they're a rich family so let's make sure this looks fancy or tacky or you right. know I'm just kind of looking at the bigger picture of the show so that's with uh, Bojack and Tuka and Birdie, that's same with thing? Bojack. With yeah. Tuka and Birdie, I'm like the captain of the ship, and I'm in every meeting. I'm the head writer, so I'm in the writers' room, and yeah, I'm just. <laughs> How much dialogue are you writing in this show? A lot. Like yeah. I wrote several episodes myself, and then I'm um, finishing up every script as it comes through. Like basically everything has my my paw prints all over it. Tell me about Birdie's. She looks almost like Egyptian. I mean, we only see her from one angle, and the and the beak. Kind of goes. Uh, do you mean? Oh, sorry, sorry, Tuka. Tuka. Yeah. What yeah. are the rules of Tuka's head? Because her beak goes kind of two hundred seventy degrees, and sometimes looks like two dimensional <laughs> hieroglyphics. It's funny you mentioned hieroglyphics. That was something we wanted from the beginning. We wanted a very iconic look yeah. for her, which is the kind of flat, two dimensional, like her head to the side look. And I like that because that's how birds actually look at things because their their eyes are on the sides of their head instead of the front. Well, it so depends kinda... on which birds, right? Predators. Yes. That's looking right. right at you, pray it's on the side. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I'm wonder that's usually in most of nature. But I'm wondering if, you know, predators and prey can get along. I mean, obviously there's a lot of interspecies dating. A lot. It's so like, you know, when a prey isn't Birdie making out with a snake at some point? Yes, in yeah. A, maybe that was a flashback. A, that was a bad relationship. Sure, you would think. <laughs> the bird really and snake. Suck the blood right out of her. Um <laughs> But yeah, I like I like the flat look to the drawings. I want it to look like a comic book. I don't want it to look like a three-dimensional like Pixar, yes. you know, kind of thing. Yes. So whenever it starts getting too rendered and we're seeing like that huge toucan beak in three-dimensional space, I want to kind of tone it back and make the drawings look a little more iconic and silly and cartoony. <laughs> are there any um, iconic duos from pop culture that these two are similar to or based on? I mean, the easiest comparison is Broad City. And that makes sense because it was super like, you know, I, I was yeah. super influenced by it and it was just a very groundbreaking show. And I think... Someone's going to do a story on this and title it Bird City. I know. I mean, yeah. I've already... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like Abby and Alana are just so amazing to me. And uh, that was one of the first times I felt that I was like fully represented on TV mm -hmm. watching that show. Um, more recently, Pen15 was like a yeah. great show that I really loved. Um, but if this were the Pen15, they'd be playing uh, like eaglets. That's right. <laughs> they'd be adult, right? <laughs> Maybe in the egg. Goslings. <laughs> yes, just <laughs> in the egg versions. God, that show's amazing. What do, oh, interesting. I didn't think of this. What do the characters in your world think of omelets? I mean, there's a part where I don't want to spoil it, but like one of them eats their own egg uh -huh. and it's kind of gross. And yeah. like it, at first it's like, wait, is that okay in this world? And then later another bird is like, wait, you ate your own egg? That's so gross. Yeah. So yeah, 
I don't know. We're kind of poking fun at like what people might, what the questions that are raised might be. Do any of the birds live in nests or bir- non-apartment type uh, settings? Perhaps, perhaps. Why not? <laughs> That's the thing. And I, I guess, if a story calls for it, yeah. I guess the last thing I have to ask you is about the cars. Now, aren't the cars kind of anthropomorphized also? They look they look it a little bit. They look like they have personalities. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted them to look cartoony. You've all, you've you've drawn a lot of different cars over the years. Isn't that one of the things yeah. that you always are drawing? I do, weird kind of cars. I do like cars. I like thinking about them. I like getting that like Consumer Reports car issue. Uh, yeah. And I'm afraid of car crashes, so I draw those a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Tuca and Birdie is the new show on Netflix. Lisa Hannibal does that. Also, she does the podcast Baby Geniuses, which we should mention, and is a producer and responsible for the look of BoJack Horseman. Lisa, it was great to meet you. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. Tucker Carlson said something absolutely correct yesterday, speaking to now withdrawn Trump Federal Reserve Board nominee Stephen Moore. What I was struck by watching your character get impugned is that nobody even mentioned your views on relevant issues. Indeed. And so let me quote Charlie Sykes of The Bulwark. He was writing in Politico. Of Moore, Sykes writes, quote, he's prone to say idiotic things about women, race, sports, and economics. That last point should be crucial since he was up for a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. But because this is Washington, his messy personal life, bad jokes, and offensive comments from decades ago did more to kill his nomination than his manifest lack of qualifications or his profound misunderstanding of basic economics. Moore, the author of Trumponomics, isn't an economist. Of course, the subject of Trumponomics might be a Trump, not a Trump. We all make mistakes. Moore, indeed, has some terrible ideas and some fundamental I, don't, I think the word backward gives him too much credit. Some fundamental incorrect notions about the economy. Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post exposed what can only be called his many lies as to matters of fact and his explanations for mistakes that he's made in the past when he got economic theory and monetary policy totally wrong. I'm not saying his opinions on the economy or his opinions on monetary policy were incorrect. I'm saying he didn't know things. He didn't know what the Volcker rule was. He didn't know if we were experiencing deflation. Moore has championed in the past the gold standard and then lied and said he didn't champion the gold standard. In fact, he was in favor of a weirder and much worse basket of commodities type peg. This dishonesty was pointed out somewhat gently, but pointed out by Neil Cavuto, on the Fox Business Network. When people say what a gold standard, what I want is the dollar to be as good as gold. You know, and that's why you have a currency, right? That it retains its value. So no, 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 I you think didn't say it like that, up- Steve. No, you said that you wanted to to go to that, the gold standard, not as good as gold. No, I, look, I, I'm, in, I'm in favor of using a currency uh, that, uh, I mean, a commodity standard, Neil, where you look right. at all, all sorts of commodities, oil, uh, cotton, copper, soybeans, and look at what's happening in those prices, and you want to keep those level over time. I don't think those are particularly controversial uh, issues. But so again, think- I think that's accurate to say that a commodity standard that the dollar is tied to is not controversial. And it's not controversial because everyone thinks it's bad if they've thought of it at all. It's kind of a weird, insane type idea. It's worse than bad. It's nuts. Let's have a soybean standard. Let's peg the dollar to oil. 
That is a nice stable commodity. In a perfect world, well, in a deeply flawed world where Stephen Moore was nominated by President Donald Trump, so that amount of perfect, but perfect enough that he would be opposed because of the terrible ideas of economics as opposed to his terrible ideas based on people. I mean, in this slightly more perfect world, we'd be calling the guy Soybean Steve, and we'd be saying, hey, Nixon took us off the gold standard. I guess Trump wants to put us on the copper standard. Trump would hate that, to be associated with copper instead of gold. But, in fact, Moore was dinged for his odious and retrograde social ideas. But, and this is what I want to say about Tucker Carlson's idea, it's not the Democrats' fault, not at all. Oh, sure, his opponents were throwing everything at him that they could. But Moore's qualifications and ideas were generally cheered by the Republicans. Ben Sass liked him. The Georgia senator, who now won't be running against Stacey Abrams, David Perdue, liked him. No, the real effect of bringing the heat about Moore's opining that women should not be allowed inside sporting venues was to appall Republican Senator Joni Ernst and also Susan Collins. Soon thereafter, Republican Senator Richard Shelby was worrying about the headache of confirming Moore, and Lindsey Graham said nominating Moore would be, quote, very problematic. And so now he's out. And the last word on this goes to Senator Ernst herself. She was directing her advice to the White House, but it could have just as easily apply to the idea of Stephen Moore as Federal Reserve Governor as Moore's ideas. And it was this advice. Let's please do some research. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, or should I say they alley-oop the gist like a fish at Pike's Market. They blend it, they drink it down in one gulp, and are powered by gist fish drink all day. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She jumps down, turns around, picks a bale of cotton, drop kicks it over the opposite goalpost, and converts a 7-10 split like a boss. The gist we humbly thank you for your listenership over the years. Checks calendar. Five years? It's been five years? Well, we ought to do something about that. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.